Welcome to Texas Style Coworking. The ranch office is a neighborhood community office that delivers a warm atmosphere with a heavy dose of Southern hospitality. Located in Memorial, Katy, and Baytown, we offer private offices, conference rooms, event space, and much more. Come change things up and check us out. Remember, life is better at the ranch. Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Batir. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. So, today... We are going to jump into that part two of the energy transition finance panel discussions that that I went and hosted a few months back. If you are a longtime listener of the show, you would have heard the first panel demystifying the loan program office process. Now, that panel, if you didn't hear it, and if you didn't if you weren't there and you didn't listen to that episode, that was the episode that was released December 6th. That episode was all about the loan program office and and how you go about that. It was a conversation with people, mostly people who were coming from the loan program office who have recently transitioned or who took place or took part in loan program office loan applications. And so that was a very, very direct, very, very process heavy conversation. One of the big questions that you may have had after listening to that is a why. Why go through the LPO? Why do this application? And what does it look like from a private industry standpoint? What do you need? What are the different components? How do you go about that process? Now, today on the on the podcast, we'll be having that second panel that we will get into in a minute here, where we had I had four different panelists, and they were talking about exactly that. What is what are the different steps that they are going through? How are they thinking about this? process? How are they preparing to start the loan program office application and where they're getting help? So there's there's panelists from private industry, panelists from consulting groups, and then those that that one part of it is is looking at the public component, really saying why does this matter for public entities and, and thinking about this from a from an economic input for a specific area. So we've got introductions on the panel. I'm not going to go through their introductions here, but I do want to highlight if you, we will, and 
many of the the panelists discussed and, and pointed out energy transition finance and emerald operating so they were the ones who who had these panels and were having a, a new office opening which is what i was there moderating so in case you don't know who they are energy transition finance is a strategic advisory firm committed to accelerating the deployment of clean energy technologies by guiding clients through the application process for the DOE loan programs office. In a nutshell, they are a consulting firm who helps you with that process. And I think it one thing that I, I got from their, their office opening and, and this event was that most loan applications in in the LPO process, they don't necessarily get rejected. They just kind of get burnt out and they grind to a halt. The, the challenge there is if you're essentially what that means is if you're trying to go at it alone, trying to apply for an LPO loan, it is a very large task and rightfully so because it is U.S. government funds to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars that they are entrusting to to a large project. So it's a it's a it's a it's an it's an in-depth process to apply for these loans and and it is very hard to have any single person or any single company really have all of the expertise necessary to go through a full LPO loan, loan application. So this is where and why everybody was was mentioning ETF and Emerald operating because in the current processes that these different groups are in, they are getting help from ETF to, to develop a successful and, and almost more importantly, a fast loan application that continues to move forward. It doesn't get stopped by by all of the friction that that grinds other applications to a halt. They keep the momentum going so that eventually you get to a decision and a financial close. I feel like I'm rambling. I've already been talking for almost seven minutes. I think that is a, a good enough introduction. There'll be links. So if you are curious about energy transition finance or emerald operating or any of the individuals on the on the panel all of those links will be in the show notes please go check them out and remember please if you're enjoying the show leave a review tell me what you're enjoying what you want to hear more of or what you don't want to hear more of and and that'll help me continue to shape this show into what you as the audience wants so with that thank you let's get to that panel now a very interesting panel we just had and really came from a hey here's why and how you do the loan process and what you need to think about now we are going to switch to talking about kind of boots on the ground what it actually looks like to be starting to pursue that and what 
you all are thinking about as you either have done that before or are just now getting in the process or are thinking about the process. So with that, let's go around and do a round of introductions and then I will get into some questions. Sure. Yeah, so good to be with you all today. Uh, Aaron Melda, Senior Vice President of Transmission and Power Supply for the Tennessee Valley Authority. Uh, office is 100 feet from here, so I had a long commute to be with you all today. Uh, and excited to talk about this energy transition. Obviously, we are right in the middle of it um, and have some exciting things going on and on the horizon. Great, thanks. I'm Paul Browning. I'm a co-founder of Energy Transition Finance with uh, my partner, Lawrence Quinn. And um, uh, part of the reason I started this company was when I was the CEO at Mitsubishi Power Americas. Uh, we got the first Title 17 program to financial close um, under Jigger's, uh, during Jigger's uh, tenure, and it was the first one in, I think, about a decade. Um, that was the Advanced Clean Energy Storage Project in Delta, Utah. Uh, the, it's the world's first utility-scale green hydrogen uh, energy storage project, uh, and uh, we got a $504 million loan from the Department of Energy Loan Programs Office, put together a $388 million equity syndicate, and um, just delivered the turbines to the project uh, recently. The electrolyzers just showed up last month. Uh, this, the uh, salt domes are being solution mined as we speak. So it's a project that got to financial closes and is now under construction. It'll, and it'll be in commercial operation in uh, 2025. Uh, good afternoon, my name is Troy Von Otnott. I'm a renewable energy developer based out of Atlanta. Um, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana, and actually started the solar energy industry in my home state in 2008 by passing some enabling legislation and forming the first company called South Coast Solar. Um, pretty, pretty big deal back home uh, when we didn't even know what a solar panel was in 2008, but we grew a successful company. I sold it in 2010 and have been consulting and developing clean energy projects ever since. I got contacted about six months ago from a company in Houston, actually outside of Houston in Sugarland, called Geothermal Core that said, look, we're developing uh, geothermal energy projects in Texas. We know about your reputation in Louisiana. We'd like to develop in Louisiana as well. So I went to go meet with them and realized the scope of their projects were so large. And we're talking hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. And I said, you know, you're, you're gonna need government support. And uh, I contacted my friend Jigger and said, hey Jigger, I've got an opportunity I want you to look at. And he succinctly said, no, thank you. And I was like, well, wait, aren't you supposed to be lending money? And he said, yeah, but I don't think you're going to develop geothermal energy in Texas. So it took me about a month to convince him to have a meeting, and he finally did. And after about a 15-minute meeting with our team, he said, wait, I think you guys can actually develop geothermal energy in Texas. Um, I'm going to assign you a representative. So we met with them and uh, went through an initial application process and they said, look, you're gonna need a consultant. And I, and I said, okay. I went back home to Atlanta and started thinking about who could potentially be a consultant. And Michael Walden calls me out of the blue and says, hey, we're building a team of, of, of technical experts uh, on clean energy. Would you wanna join our team? And I said, I think I'm conflicted. I don't think I could do that because I'm gonna be an applicant. He goes, good, you're gonna be our client. And so here we are uh, getting ready to start our application with the LPO. and. Um, I've been extremely pleased with the engagement we've had with ETF to, to date and really excited to go through this process with them. So thank you. 
Good afternoon. I'm uh, Jim Campbell. I've been uh, uh, working in the energy uh, space for a lot of years now. I've been uh, uh, the president of the East Tennessee Economic Council in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. That's an organization that uh, is a membership group. We have about uh, 200 plus members, almost all of whom are in some kind of energy uh, business one way or the other or, or work with Oak Ridge National Labor Laboratory or the Y-12 plant or the environmental management business in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Um, as you were talking about your background and, and your hub you just won, congratulations on that. Uh, my organization just bid on a nuclear science hub and we lost. So, but we are a hub, so I, and we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about that some more. Um, about 15 years ago, we started a, a nuclear uh, working group to look at uh, bringing uh, this new group of nuclear companies to Oak Ridge to work with our scientists and TVA uh, and and the other resources in the Valley, the University of Tennessee, which has got a world-class nuclear engineering group, and and we have successfully uh, over the past. Uh, five, six years brought in about 500 million in investment into the Oak Ridge market uh, with companies like Kaiser, uh, Kairos Power, UltraSafe Nuclear, X Energy, Triso X, the growth of Centris as they start making um, Halo Fuel again. We're going to see more investment in this area in the future, no question about that in my mind. Uh, hopefully from people in this room and others uh, that we're, we're, we're continuing to talk to. Um, I started my, my career, though, in the newspaper business, and, and that's how I got to know Congressman Womp. I was the editor of the newspaper in Oak Ridge, and, and I made some mistakes in reporting. And, and the, uh, the gentleman uh, from the Department of Energy and its contractors assigned a past director of Oak Ridge National Laboratory, Herman Postma, uh, to me to get me smart on all the things that Oak Ridge uh, does. And so for 40 years they've been teaching me uh, what we do and how we can do it better, not just in, in nuclear, but batteries, nanotechnology, material sciences, all of which weigh into this space. Uh, if we can lightweight cars, if we can lightweight batteries, we're changing the world in, in this space. If we can 3D print nuclear fuel, uh, which we're going to be able to do soon, uh, actually there's a a company here that's trying to do that right now. Um, uh, this is a great time to be in this space and to be investing in this space. Yep, absolutely. Well, thank you for your introductions. Now, I want to start pre-application. Troy, you're here representing a company who is about to start an application and, and I want to think even before applications, talking about Tennessee Valley Authority, East Tennessee Economic Council, Oak Ridge, all of these combinations, and then thinking about the application itself with NEPA, community benefits plans that you need now, and um, I, I think I'm gonna get it wrong. Was it Davis Bacon? Was that right? Davis Bacon uh, something. Wages. Wage standards, Davis thank you. Wages. Davis Bacon wages. These are things that, that clearly I am ignorant on. And it sounds like you need a, a real team and a community-based team to build these. So what are those roles, either from the developer perspective with Geothermal Core or from, that, from the TVA or East, Texas, East 
Tennessee Energy Council. What are those roles and how do you need those teams to really have successful opportunity? Yeah, I'll start. I'll, I'll just tell you that most private companies don't have re requisite expertise in dealing with NEPA or dealing with many of the federal agencies that provide oversight. So, you know, we, we look at like energy transition finance as kind of our, our back office team, right? They've got real experts that have been through these processes before and can help guide us through that. And, and you know, yes, you know, you're gonna pay for a consultant, it's gonna not be a cheap proposition, but at the end of the day, you have to think that expediting the, the loan process, because time is money, and getting through a, a multi-hundred million dollar loan process um, you know, with a consultant is gonna be much easier and less painful than going through it without one. And, and you know, Priya, you mentioned earlier that you know, many of the projects that are, are easily financeable don't need LPO, right? So you know, for the fact that we're gonna build the first geothermal project outside of the, the western part of the, the country, you know, puts us in a, in, a, in a new category. We'll be the first one drilling a geothermal well in Texas, right? So, and we're talking several hundred million dollars. So we can't just go to Wells Fargo and go get that loan without, you know, them saying, what do you mean you're doing geothermal? We don't know what this is. They don't have the technical bench to do the due diligence to begin with. So you really need help. Um, and, you know, companies like ETF are really well suited to help provide those uh, solutions. You know, the one thing I would say, you know, when I was at Mitsubishi and we were setting up our team to go after the um, ACES project, one of the better decisions we made early on was we put A-plus players on this team, and it wasn't one or two, it was five. We had five full-time employees at our, at our place, and then we had a private equity partner, Addington Ventures, who also put uh, some of their A-plus people on this. Um, five A-plus people, a lot of companies don't have them, or they don't have those A-plus people with the right uh, expertise. And that's where, when, we, when Lawrence and I formed Energy Transition Finance, one of the things that Lawrence and his team at Emerald Operating Partners brings to the table, we have 160 people on their staff that have every energy transition expertise you could want, plus project finance expertise. Um, and so whatever gaps a company has when they're starting in this process, we've got the right people um, and, and the quantity of people to fill and, and give them an A-plus team. Uh, and that's so important because if you try to go through this process with a, a bunch of C players, um, it's, it's not going to go well. And, and you know, the, the final thing I'll say before I pass the mic is you're not just trying to get a, a, a loan from the Department of Energy Loan Programs Office. You're trying to get the financial close. So you need someone to help you with your equity syndicate. You need someone to help you with your offtake agreements. You need someone to help you with your supply chain. Um, and again, we can, we can help with all of that. Yeah, so um, I, I'll hit it from this standpoint. For the TVA, you know, one of our core missions is improving standards of living for people that sit here in the valley. And so when we think about what that looks like over the next several decades, decarbonization is a key component of that. And decarbonization does not happen without partnerships. In fact, you can find yourself in situations where there are incredibly unproductive situations that can occur if you don't have those kind of partnerships. You know, just one example, and I won't, I won't mention the name, but major OEM in our footprint that has 
corporate sustainability goals that they're driving to. So they want to decarbonize their footprint. They want to electrify their entire facility. So they want to take a gas-fired drying system for their vehicles, and they want to electrify it. Well, if we simply do that, that looks like additional 125 megawatts that we've got to serve. And if they need it in three years, the only thing I can put on the ground is a natural gas plant. So now I'm burning natural gas over here to provide electricity over here. That doesn't make sense. So having these kind of partnerships where we can point to individuals that can help these companies with alternative solutions and financing to get them in the place they need to be, process heat storage, other solutions, you know, it's critical for us across the valley. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of ways to look at this question that you've asked. Uh, uh, we live with NEPA in Oak Ridge because every time you do a change in federal use of whatever uh, new project comes along, you have to have a NEPA process. So we're really skilled in, in our community at responding to NEPA activities and NRC uh, things as far as the nuclear uh, subject goes. Um, those aren't normal requirements, I, I can say that. Uh, I do know that uh, in the nuclear industry, uh, one of the reasons why we're a hub is because our community knows how to talk to the regulator, regulator community, knows what to ask for, knows what kind of security things are important, knows uh, what, what the, the uh, processes need to be for the company to operate in so that they are good citizens of our company. We respect that and we bring them here as, as often as we can. Uh, the TVA uh, small modular rea reactor project is in our town and it's, uh, it's got the only uh, licensed site, commercial site, for a small modular reactor in the nation right now. And uh, we, we did that as a community and made that happen with the NRC. And now we're working with um, uh, GE and, and Hitachi um, to try to get their uh, machine license so they can build the dang project, which is the ultimate goal. We've got to get that project built. And I was in a meeting actually yesterday where a group of people were talking about what we needed to do to make sure that project gets uh, the necessary funding and gets done. Um, in, in a timely way. Um, for some of these other projects, you know, we've looked at lightweighting materials uh, like uh, low-cost carbon fiber. You know, that can really revolutionize the automobile industry if you can get, you know, even the aluminum out of, out of the, the car and get it down into something super strong and super lightweight. And those materials are around. We've looked at batteries. Uh, I actually had a meeting last week with a company called Sapphire, which is looking at taking uh, weight out of Elon Musk batteries. Uh, we may want you to help us <laughs> get to meet him. <laughs> uh, anyway. So if it's not obvious, I think there is some great value in having an LPO loan and one of these major projects in your service area. But just in case there isn't something that that isn't that obvious, like what are, what are the not obvious benefits to get an LPO in somewhere like rural Utah or in the TVA or in Baytown or Sugarland, Texas or in Oak Ridge? Um, well, just a couple examples. Uh, in, our, in the case of the project in Utah, 
we had a 30-year offtake agreement with the Intermountain Power Agency, and the DOE was able to match that with a 30-year tenor on our loan. Um, getting a 30-year tenor from a commercial bank, I'm not sure that exists. Um, and, and so, they, but they were willing to match the tenor of our offtake agreement with the tenor of the loan. That, that, that was huge. The other thing, um, we spent a lot of time working with our partners in this project on who was gonna share what risk and the reason was that we, we kept going back to the DOE and, and with, you know, what can we do to get the lowest rate on our, uh, on this loan? And they have, you know, uh, they have different ways they make a decision on how much of a, um, of a premium to the basis they're using, they're gonna charge you. And we were able to, we ended up getting a, a, a weighted average cost of capital on our project that was actually lower than the weighted average cost of capital of the AA credit offtaker that we, that we were working with, which is sort of an amazing thing to think about on a first-time project, uh, first-of-its-kind project. A project company gets a non-recourse loan that results in a lower weighted average cost of capital than a, a AA credit utility. Um, so there's all sorts of financial benefits that are there if you do this correctly. Yeah, the one thing I'll add is I think the, the Delta project really got some momentum when Mitsubishi came into the project, right? So, so even when you're a small company or a small developer, it really helps to establish partnerships with larger companies that have bigger balance sheets and that the federal government can get comfortable with. And um, you know, I, I think that's, that's gonna happen all over the country. I think with the announcement of the hydrogen hubs uh, a few weeks ago, you know, we've been contacted by probably 10 green hydrogen developers in Texas saying, hey, we'd, we'd love to have geothermal energy so we can get base load, you know, green hydrogen uh, to power our, our, our electrolyzers. And you know, this could be an opportunity for Mitsubishi as well. So I think, I think you're gonna start to see a lot of small companies partnering with, with much larger companies. And that's, that's how we're gonna really get to the energy transition faster than trying to go it alone. Yeah, Jeff Lyash, uh, who's uh, CEO of TVA, said in a meeting the other day, or a couple months ago, I guess, that in the next uh, 30 years, he has to build as much new generation power as TVA built in the first 90 years of its operation. <laughs> 30 years. And that's going to be all carbon neutral as best, as best we can, which means it's going to be a lot of nuclear. But it's going to be a lot of everything else as well, and, and finding sites to do those projects, finding uh, ways for the grid to interact uh, with, you know, so so you can produce from solar and give back and all that. The technology um, uh, pathways for the next 30 years are just going to be fascinating to watch. Um, there's a historian, a Canadian historian, economic historian, who wrote about the four inventions that changed the, the 20th century, and they were all inventions that occurred in the late 1880s and 90s. Things like nitrogen and uh, the electric grid and, and the Edison work. Uh, and what we're gonna see in the next 30 years, I think, is some period just like that, when you're gonna see a lot of transitional, uh, transitional uh, power sources coming online and, and we've got to figure out how to fund them and how to get, get those projects going so that they're done. 
Yeah, so I'll, I'll just expand on that. Um, to, to do what, what, I, what I think I'll paint a bit of a reality of what the utilities are working through right now, and I'll use TV as the proxy for this. So um, 09 to 19, you know, largely across the utility industry, we saw flat sales. Great energy efficiency standards were put in place. They were offsetting any residential and commercial growth. Economic development was coming in, but you know, it wasn't at a pace that we couldn't keep up with. Pandemic occurs, we actually get a drop in sales. So we're looking longer term at decarbonization and sustainability goals, and it looks like add as much solar as we possibly can, layer in battery storage such that we can manage the load shape, and get to nuclear as quickly as we can, which is a decade-long path. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, the CHIPS Act has been incredibly successful in our footprint. We have pre-sold 3,000 megawatts of economic development load between now and 2029. And these are things like EV manufacturers, battery plants, solar developers, you know, all great things for the broader society um, decarbonization. But it's put us in a position where that represents 10% of growth in a period where we're coming off of zero growth. And so we've start, we, we have to fill the gap with natural gas. So we're building six natural gas plants right now. And this is to say, we've got a lot of eggs in a basket of innovation around carbon capture, hydrogen technology, other technologies that may repower these plants as we move forward, because we think the, the underlying components are gonna still be very useful, but we've gotta meet the needs that this growth has created. And just, while well, I got the mic, I'll use, I, I gotta hit my SMR. Um, I think everybody knows, TVA is very bullish on small modular reactors. And an important point I try to make in all of these types of conversations is there is zero innovation in the nuclear reactor technology that we are investing in. It's a shrunk down boiling water reactor. We've got three of them operating today at Browns Ferry. There is incredible innovation in the construction process. And that is the most important thing we need to innovate right now in the nuclear industry because every nuclear project that has ever been done is over budget, over schedule, and that's why we can't bear that kind of risk in a, in a renaissance of nuclear. So in a traditional plant, they're so big, you gotta bring every pipe in, you gotta bring every valve in, every motor in, you gotta go through NRC standards, you gotta test those, you gotta go through these decks of paperwork that you gotta turn in. The real innovation of an SMR is their size such that you can build these systems in a manufacturing environment. And they come to site prepped for NRC approval, you plug them in, and you take all that construction risk out. So that's why we are so bullish on this technology, and that's why we've partnered with both Ontario Power and Synthos, which is in Poland, um, because we all believe this is critical to the future of decarbonization and, and doing what we need to do for our kids. So I think there's been some really great examples here talking about the hydrogen hubs and people coming to Geothermal Core saying we need power for green hydrogen and exactly what you just said about the SMRs and how that significantly expedites the approval process for any type of, of nuclear power and for, for other people thinking about these projects maybe using ACES Delta as an example. 
I think you will have some subject matter experts who develop some really great technology, really innovative ideas that check all of those boxes for an LPO loan, but they don't necessarily see the grander scale. They don't understand what their little piece is in the energy transition. How, how can you help companies or how should a company go about trying to answer that big question like, what is their little widget in, in energy? Yeah, maybe I'll just start. I think one of the things, I'm an engineer, um, and one of the things that surprised me as I sort of moved through my career was by the end of my career, I was a project developer, plain and simple. Um, and I came to the realization that developing projects is actually what gets things done in this industry. A lot of startup companies, are, and well, not, even, even a lot of more mature companies, they don't have that project developer kind of mindset. And you have to understand how to develop a project to get to financial close. It's just that simple. And, um, and so that's where a lot of our clients need help, is to understand. Somebody said earlier, you know, you need to know where the finish line is. If you don't know how to develop a project, you, you don't know how to, you know, what does financial close actually look like? We can help a, a client understand this is what the finish line looks like and the assessment that Michael showed earlier, we can, you know, we give them a score from zero to 100 on how ready they're able to get across that project development, project finance, financial close finish line. Um, and a lot of them are oftentimes surprised that they think they've made a whole lot of progress and they have in several areas, but they're just way behind uh, and have no concept of another very, very big, time-consuming, expensive hurdle that they haven't even started on yet. So those are all the kind of things that, um, you know, we, we see a lot of great entrepreneurs come into us that just don't have a lot of experience getting a project to financial close. Yeah, I'll just, uh, a, a big transition we went through a few years ago and where I think an organization like ETF can be very helpful uh, in fact, in this building. Used to be a TVA building, became a uh, incubator for innovation. We came over here to hear pitch. So it was kind of a shark tank sort of thing. And we ran into this. It was, mm, that doesn't fit up. That doesn't fit what we need. That doesn't. And we turned it around and said, we need a reverse pitch. We need to come in, have the innovators in the room and say, here's the purpose and need. Because any good NEPA process, you've got to have the purpose and need defined. So if we can provide the purpose and need, I think it aligns the innovators out there in a position where they can create a project that's going to get through the process. Yeah, so it's, it's funny, I was laughing when you said some companies think they got it all together and then they go submit your application through your portal. And I think that was us on your screen and we got a 53, which was a fail, right? Which sucked. And I was like, wait a minute, we're way better than a, than a fail. But, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And right. And so, you know, you don't really understand how, uh, you know, the, the LPO is going to grade something. So having that that requisite understanding uh, helps you helps you accept your failures early and then and improve as quickly as you can. But I'll tell you that I think the biggest challenge that the renewables uh, the developer industry has on the renewable side, and Aaron can probably speak to this on the utility side, is you know access to, to transmission. I mean, we've got such challenges with the transmission grid needing dramatic amounts of money to improve and grow and allow renewables to get on the grid. I think there's something like 
I don't know, 30,000 megawatts waiting for access. And, um, and to Paul's point earlier, like being a developer to me is being a problem solver. So we figured out a way around that in Texas um, to, to get started. And that is we, we approached a solar developer that already had a interconnection agreement with the utility for about 350 megawatts. And we learned that they were only gonna build 300. So we said, hey, can we, can we basically buy access to your other 50 and bypass the two year uh, you know, period to get connected to the grid? And so that's just sort of innovative thinking that uh, is gonna allow us to you know, kind of work through the, the transmission access issues. Uh, and, and hopefully you, know, you guys can maybe help your developers figure that out on, on TVA property. Yeah, I work, I work with a lot of uh, scientists and engineers that dream up things. Uh, one of them uh, had a side business that he and a buddy started uh, to make solar panels, and, and the funding source was going to be um, school buildings. There was a pot of money to make elementary schools and school districts green, and they were going to put, he, he was going to sell his machine to school districts and uh, we took it to the Oak Ridge school system and we tried to figure out how to put it on the roof of their schools. Machine didn't fit on the roof, on any one of their roofs. And it would have cost more money to retrofit all the roofs than it would to buy the system. So he just didn't understand what the problem was with the roofs and, and what elementary school roofs look like eventually sold the idea and it, it, they took it out to San Diego and I, I believe it made some money for them, uh, but it didn't make money in East Tennessee. And that was, that was one of the problems. The, the challenge of working with really creative people is they're really creative people and they don't, they don't like to stay inside the lines uh, as much as they should. I think that's a, that's a good segue into this next question because really creative people bring really creative ideas and can find ways to put together good solutions that may not have a, a good fit and they may be a, a small niche opportunity. But when we're talking about the energy transition, there's, there's a lot of numbers out there. But the ones that, that, that I've heard most often is investment of anywhere from two to five trillion dollars, US dollars, per year for approximately the next 10 to 20, maybe even 30 years. That's a lot of money. That's a, that's a, that is, when we're talking about timeline and, and finish line, that is, that is really hard to think about. So the question there is, what, is it, what does it actually mean to try and do this energy transition at scale? What does it mean to have 30,000 megawatts actually get put onto the grid that are all clean, decarbonized, reliable energy. Not all at once. Sure. Uh, it's really hard. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, here's the things you have to think through. You know, fundamentally, electricity is so different than any other commodity. It has to be supplied every second exactly the way it's consumed. So there's storage out there, and we talk about storage, and we're layering in batteries, and we've got pump storage, and we're working on another pump storage, but it represents a tiny fraction of the total power needs that industries and communities and commercials consume every day. So it is imperative 
that before you transition away from this source, you have this other source on and reliable. So, you know, for, for TVA, we've reduced our carbon footprint. We're, we're on path to 70% reduction in CO2 by 2030. In that, we have a number of coal-fired plants that we still have to get off the system. And so working through not just bring a new plant online before this plant comes offline, but also all the infrastructure that's got to go to it. You know, I was thinking of it kind of like a big piping system. I, I, I got to have pipes to it to get the water out. Same thing with the electricity, and it's all going into the big pool. Um, so that's critical. The pace at which we're going right now is such that I can't conceivably get some of these things done in order to meet the reliability challenge. Now, we're pressing, we are pressing everywhere we can press, but right now to build, say, a 10-mile transmission line, it's gonna take me seven years. The actual construction of that line takes me 18 months. It's working through the NEPA process, it's working through cultural reviews, it's going through the permitting process, it's getting everything in line to be able to do that project. And that's a 10-mile line. We need 100,000 miles of new transmission throughout the U.S. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I had, I had somebody tell me once that what we're trying to do in the energy transition, it's the kind of thing that humanity hasn't done that many times. Like, it's like the, you know, building the aqueducts. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, you know, that kind of scale of thing we're trying to do. But I, one of the things I want to maybe give people a little solace on is we have all sorts of help right now that we didn't have before. So just for example, getting a, any kind of energy transition project on one of your biggest challenges is getting an offtake agreement, right? Well, guess what? In hydrogen right now, you have a $3 kilogram offtake agreement with the biggest balance sheet in the world, the U.S. Treasury. Subsidy. Uh, what's that? You have a subsidy. You have an offtake agreement, which is a tax credit. $3 a kilogram, and the, the thing that's great about it is you don't even have to be, it doesn't even have to be delivered, you just have to produce it. Um, and so, if you can produce a kilogram of hydrogen, you have a $3 a kilogram, 10-year offtake agreement from the U.S. Treasury. Um, that's a big deal, and it, it doesn't mean you don't need a commercial offtake, but it means that when you go to the Department of Energy Loan Programs Office, you've got $3 that you can show them that's they can literally take it to the bank um, and you've got an offtake agreement. Similarly with, uh, if you're gonna build a PV solar manufacturing facility, um, the Inflation Reduction Act gives you, if you go, if you build ingot wafer cell module, about 16 or 17 cents a watt of uh, production tax credit for something that you're gonna sell for about 30 cents a watt. So something like 60% of your cost of goods sold is covered by a production tax credit that you get if you just produce your product. Um, so these are huge changes, like titanic changes in what it takes to get a project to financial close, the, the new subsidies that are in the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons all this energy is needed is because every power plant that's built has a life cycle, right? So we built a lot of coal plants back in the day, a lot of gas plants, they're gonna come offline. We need to replace those with new power generating assets. It's one of the reasons I'm really focused on geothermal energy because every utility we've ever spoken to says, if you can get us dispatchable energy, that would be awesome. You know, I'm a solar developer and we can't really do that. Even with storage, we can only get four or five, six hours 
and it's it's not around the clock dispatchable. So um, I think a lot of effort and emphasis really needs to go into supporting you know baseload energy, which you know nuclear and, and geothermal is really the only other options except site-specific hydro, which you can't put everywhere. So uh, I'm hoping that uh, at the LPO and federal government and, and investment community really steps up and starts supporting you know the, the baseload energy developers in the country. I, I was thinking of your history analogy and, and the book I'm working on right now is about uh, the transition of the Manhattan Project technologies into real economic venues and power is certainly one of those things and it took decades to go from the Manhattan Project to a working nuclear plant and it took a lot of actions by Congress, by appropriators, by a whole new regulatory system that had to be built around that and the decades that it took um, just to get that power onto the grid and I the worry I have about all these new things is it's going to take that long again with hydrogen with some of the other things that are, that are coming down the pike. Uh, uh, the other part of that is medicines and you want to talk about a, a, an, a, an industry that's regulated even more than energy, it's medicine and, and uh, a lot of the isotopes and, and the cancer treatments and the instrumentation all came out of the Manhattan Project world and um, the innovation and, and all that had to be incorporated by some really creative people and some really interesting bankers and, and other folks to get it deployed. So. I think that it's been very good hearing all of that and hearing those points and, and ultimately how things like LPO and the grants and the Manhattan Project, all of this works into energy and how we actually do this massive scale energy transition. Just in case it hasn't been cleared, Let's let's land the plane now, talking specifically being on this side, either currently or recently in the past, or thinking about being on the side of submitting an LPO application. What, what piece of advice or what is that like big thing that you're thinking about right now with that application? What are you working on for that? I would say from our standpoint, it's, it's trying to you know, think about the end of the process first and making sure that we, we understand all of the requirements to get through the due diligence period, right? So you got about a year, got about a year to get through this process and you know, focus on offtake is credible, bankable offtake is extremely important, making sure that you've got all your site conditions, you know, uh, void of any potential NEPA obstacles or any other uh, time delaying obstacles and you know making sure that your your capital stack uh, partners are really you know going to be there with you at the time of closing because the closing is is part one you know then you got to get into building and development and, and that's when the real work begins so um, you know it's making sure you've got really good partners uh, to, to go on this journey with you. Yeah, I, I think you know, we've talked a lot about debt today because you know, we're sort of focused on the loan program office, but um, you know, with interest rates increasing and the Fed tightening, equity is actually a little bit bigger challenge today than it was a year ago. I can tell you this from personal experience. Um, and so I think you know, one of the things that we are gonna be 
putting a, a good amount of focus on it at energy transition finance is also helping our clients on the equity side. Um, we're just we're finding that you know it doesn't do you any good if you get a DOE loan and you don't have your equity arrangement. And as a matter of fact, I mean the DOE is not going to give you a loan unless you've got your equity uh, in place. So. So anyway, I, I think that's something that is maybe a, a bigger concern today than it was a year ago, um, just because things have tightened a bit um, in the in financial markets. Yeah, I, I think I'd just say, a, as you do your market intelligence, press the market for commitment. So I, I can't tell you, you know, probably 40 great ideas try to get on my calendar a month, two or three come through, and they're very interesting. Interesting doesn't mean I'm going to sign a contract with them. You got to get too important. Um, so I, you know, I think it's don't just get in the door. Once you're in the door, really ask the question: Would you put this on your system? Is this something you would consider as part of your future strategy for the transition? Because if you don't get that answer, you're you're probably playing with bad data. All right, well, I think we actually have some time for questions. Do we have any questions from the audience? So in my experience, you've seen a lot of projects uh, proposed and developed, and a lot of them are constrained by transmission. Troy, I think that was an excellent point. I, I certainly view transmission as the biggest impediment to increasing renewable energy. Uh, an observation that I've made is so many are um, permitted and you know approved and they get their site set up and then they're sold before any construction is done and I'm just curious um, how many of these do you think are actually going to get finished or I mean I I think there's going to be a massive number of projects that have actually um, gotten to NTP and been sold and they're just never going to get built um, I'd be curious for your observations from any of the panel members. You know, just real quickly, you know, when I used to work at an OEM and we made decisions about which projects we were, we were going to invest in, we took a position that only about 30% of projects actually get the financial close. Um, and so the kind of return we wanted if we were going to invest in a project was we wanted like a 3x return because we were going to have zeros on on two out of three. Um, and so it's always been the case that project development has been a really risky business. Um, but like you said, right now with interconnect queues being in the situation they are, uh, it's a bigger thing. And, and I, I would just, you know, real quickly, I'm gonna, a little bit on a soapbox. Um, there was, back when the challenge was to keep fossil fuels on the ground, there was a, a big push to, make it very difficult to build pipelines to do you know to build infrastructure energy infrastructure projects and all of the work that was done to make it much more difficult to get fossil fuel projects down is now making it much more difficult to get green energy projects done and we have to undo that because the reason people put those obstacles in place were, it doesn't apply to what we're trying to do you know, I, I feel like if you're, for example, if you're trying to build a green hydrogen pipeline that's got nothing but renewable energy in it, you shouldn't have the same kind of uh, roadblocks if you're trying to build it full of fossil fuel. 
And, and, and again, the, I just think we, we somehow need to do a rethink on that. And, it, and you're absolutely right. It's, for us to move at the pace we need to move at, we have to solve that problem. Yeah, so quickly, I'll just say, um, on average, less than 10% of the projects that come into our interconnection queue go commercial. There's been a huge issue with the interconnection queue, which is a regulated process, and it's that it was not set up for all these small installations at multiple places across the system, because it is incredibly important that we are able to provide locational value for those types of installations. Well, the problem is I can't provide locational value because it's competitively sensitive to all the renewable developers that are out there. So you're in a catch-22. I, I, I will say FERC came out with some new guidance for a quarter 2023, which is going to require utilities to publish location information. And that will drastically improve our ability to put uh, renewable resources to market. Hold on, we've got one more okay. comment on the old question, right? Go ahead. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to go back to my, my new friend at uh, TDA, and I was trying to think of my, my friend, Tracy Lebeau, who worked with me in, in headquarters, then went out there and became the uh, director. So, um, first of all, I'm shocked to hear that you're building all these natural gas fire power plants. I mean, that's like, I was having a good day until I heard that. Um, so, like, why is that? And what can you do? And, you know, look, we're, we're, we all know. And this young man right to my right, he and I have been doing project finance for about 30 years together. And finally, and he said to me this earlier, there's a new world at Southern Company. Up until, like, two days ago, they were getting ready to build more coal-fired power plants. I thought that was a way to go. So how do we, how do we harness TBA, WAPA, Southern Company, and all these folks to really accelerate the energy transition? And are we going to need major regulatory reform, PUC uh, reform, to do that? Because, you know, you guys are dinosaurs for good reason because you're regulated by dinosaurs. So we have all the dinosaurs dancing together. So we got to get out of those suits and put on the Jetson shoes or something because we got to speed this up. Yeah. So <clears throat> first, I'll, I'll explain again why we find ourselves in the place we do. If if growth is flat, we're just we're we're accelerating solar onto the grid and we're working towards building those SMRs. When you add 10% to our peak needs in the next three years. I can't get anything on the ground but natural gas. So now I'm banking on carbon capture, I'm banking on hydrogen. We're retrofitting all of those. You're gonna see a pad that says carbon capture. We don't know what's gonna go on it yet, but it's gonna be there, ready to go. We're gonna have another uh, piping infrastructure prepped for hydrogen. It's gonna have hydrogen burn on them, but I can't get anything in the ground to serve this new load in time. Yeah. And maybe just to add a little bit to that. You know, what we're going through is an energy transition. It's not, you know, black yesterday, white tomorrow. And this guy, you know, the only thing that's worse than him not meeting his uh, CO2 reduction targets is if the lights go out, right? Um, 
because you know, in one case he gets a slap on the wrist, in the other case, you know, I go home. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, That's and, abundantly well, clear. Well, and really for all of society, think about it. We're in the process as part of the electric of the energy transition. We're electrifying everything. The electrical grid is going to be even more important in the future than it is today. Plus, everything's going to be intelligent, which doesn't work without electricity. Um, and you know, so. The, the need for a resilient grid is, more is going to be more important in the future than it is today. And he's going to be up against more extreme weather in the future than he is today. And so, the, but what I love to hear you say is that you're putting in a bunch of natural gas power plants, but you're thinking of a future of either carbon capture or, or uh, a clean fuel like hydrogen. To, so, so it's natural gas isn't the finish line, it's the starting line on, on those projects. And we all have to come up with the solutions to help him and his and, and the team at TVA and Southern Company and and Entergy and Los Angeles Department of Water and Power and uh, and a lot of in, uh, unregulated parts of the country. We need to get come up with the solutions. And and where the LPO is so important is providing that bridge financing for all this stuff that we're going to need that that needs to happen faster than it would naturally occur without something like the LPO and the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law. Yeah, a lot of the advanced nuclear projects that are out there um, won't be able to get to market until 2035 at the earliest. TVAs will get there much quicker, probably by 30, 31, 32, but, but because they're new technology and, it, and the processes that the NRC and, and other things go through, they're just gonna take longer. The other part of the problem is there's no fuel. The halo fuel, which is the new kind of fuel, which is much better than, than the kind that GE's gonna be using, um, isn't gonna be ready until 2035 either. So we're getting, the timeline's getting stretched out too long. And yeah, we need to, I agree with your point, we need to speed it up as fast as we can. So thank you everybody for being here and listening. Thank you all to the panelists and looking forward to continuing the conversation. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.